I'm not going to be long this morning, God willing. Every preacher who says that is a liar, but I will, I will do my best to honor the request of the bishop and be succinct. So forgive me if this is a little bit stereotypical, but I just want to bring out three quick things from this text this morning. Jesus had an original plan. If we read back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 14, Jesus tried to get alone. He tried to get into a place of solitude, and the crowds were pressing in on him so greatly um, that he changed his plans. And this is when we find Jesus feeding the multitude at the beginning of Matthew 15. And this stands out to me, certainly as someone in ministry, but I think as any one of us who are trying to follow Jesus in the midst of a hectic world, in the midst of our jobs and families and uh, obligations that we have, the first thing that stands out to me, and this is important to the actual text we read this morning, is that Jesus' plans are interruptible. Jesus' plans are interruptible. There's a certain humility about that, isn't there? Where Jesus has this earnest desire to be alone with his father. And that's a a wonderful thing. As a matter of fact, this evening, we're going to be having a vowing service here for the order of St. Anthony. And those are people who are vowing to live a life of formation. And one of the ways you're formed is through solitude, getting alone with God. This is a wonderful thing that Jesus is planning to do. And he's planning to do this because he has lost his cousin. John the Baptist has been killed brutally and senselessly And Jesus, being fully man, is processing his grief in solitude with his father. It's a beautiful image for all of us who, through various points in our lives, encounter grief. Jesus wants to move towards solitude, but the crowds interrupt him. And he's willing to be interrupted and to be with people. I'm reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his work, Life Together. He said that a person... Is only can only be alone by themselves well if they're able to be in community well. If we're not willing to be in community well, if we're not willing to be in fellowship with others well, times of solitude will become indulgent. And Jesus shows us this in his willingness to interrupt his own plans, his own needs, his own pursuits for fellowship with the Father. And the bottom line here, I think, on one level is to simply say that spiritual practices cannot be isolated from human experience. We cannot isolate our prayer. We cannot isolate our study. We cannot isolate our fasting. We cannot isolate these various disciplines and pursuits from the reality of human experience. And I think this is the fear many people have coming into this Sunday morning is that our preaching, which in itself is a spiritual discipline, it's a spiritual act of worship, will be isolated from the human experience of our nation today. That somehow uh, this will become a sanctuary in the worst sort of way. It will become an isolation chamber where we hold up ourselves away from the horrors of sin and the ways in which the enemy wreaks havoc among men and women, among boys and girls. We cannot cordon off our spiritual practices from the reality of human experience. One of my, one of my favorite authors is Eugene Peterson, and uh, he's written a memoir about pastoring, and he pastored for over 20 years in a church very much this size in Maryland. And uh, early on in his ministry, he was getting frustrated 
because people kept knocking on his door at the church. And they kept wanting to talk to him. And they kept calling him. And it was really starting to bother him. And he was trying to study, and he was trying to pray, and he was trying to do all the things that pastors have to do if they're going to lead and serve a congregation well. And finally, in his frustrated prayer, God, what am I supposed to do with this? They're interrupting my ministry. (laughs) And he heard a still, small voice say, what you are calling interruption is ministry. Can you take that with you into the week? I know I need to. My pride is always on full display whenever I get interrupted. Not just in conversation, but just in my agenda for the day. The second thing I'd like to point out is that Jesus has this tremendous miracle of feeding thousands of people. Some would estimate somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people he feeds. Tremendous number. Of course, taking a little and multiplying it, which is a separate sermon in and of itself. But here's what I noticed about this. As soon as everybody's fed, as soon as the miracle takes place, what does Jesus do? He gets back on track and is determined to pursue solitude again. In other words, Jesus was not distracted by his success. I think sometimes we can be so keen to celebrate our wins. We can be so uh, caught up in the moment where something great and something good happens that we forget what the big picture is. We forget what we started doing in the first place. We get off course. Jesus is so beautiful here because he does an amazing thing and he denies himself his own need for solitude with God and he takes his time to be with the multitudes and he ministers to them and he doesn't push them away and he loves them and he provides for them and he does so in miraculous, supernatural ways. At which point I'd be signing autographs, right? I'd be out there in the lobby shaking everybody's hands. Yes, these are the hands that multiplied the bread for you. That's what I'd be doing. Not Jesus. Jesus remembers, wait a minute, before this great thing happened, I was on a mission. I needed to be with my father. I wonder if we're not most vulnerable in our success. If we're not most prone to lose context when we're experiencing success. And, of course, Jesus does follow through this time. In our text, Jesus goes alone by himself to pray. And two quick thoughts to this point here, and that is, number one, Jesus' absence is intentional. It's kind of odd. As I was singing, we were singing together. I was singing with you. Let us become more aware of your presence. And one of the main points of this sermon this morning is absence. Jesus' absence in our lives is very intentional. And it's very counterintuitive because our tradition has often taught us that Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age, except for when he's not. I think you know, I hope you know what I mean when I say that, and that if Jesus is everywhere, he's nowhere on some level. And there are those moments and seasons where Jesus withdraws in a personal sense but it is very intentional 
For some reason, Jesus doesn't feel the need to be with his disciples all of the time. And the second thing I would say is this. If Jesus' absence is intentional, it's because his absence is instructive. He's teaching us at all times, specifically when he's not there, because we learn as much in Jesus' absence as we do in Jesus' presence. You see, in Matthew chapter 8, if you were to go back and look at it, the disciples have been in this same boat, possibly, on this same sea in a storm. But in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is with them. And Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat, and he's teaching them in his presence. His presence is teaching them that there is no reason to fear. And he sleeps to prove his point. In Matthew chapter 14, same boat, same water, same storm, if you will, no Jesus. It implies that Jesus, on some level, thinks they're ready for the next level of training, the next level of instruction. You guys should have learned last time, you 12, that you can get through a storm. Now let's see you get through the storm without me. In other words, the absence of God is essential for our maturity. If you're a parent, you know that I'm telling the truth. And as a matter of fact, it's scary for the parent, but not the child, right? When you're not with the child, my son is back home in New York right now. He's 19. Can you feel the fear coming off of the platform right now? I have a 19-year-old son 1,500 miles away, and I'm not present to him, but I am. He's growing up as I speak this morning. So Jesus' plan was interruptible. Secondly, Jesus was not distracted by his success. And lastly, Jesus was not in a rush to fix his disciples' problems. Chrysostom says it this way. He did not come quickly to the disciples' rescue. Can somebody say, I know what that's like? (laughs) He was training them by their fears. He was training them by their fears and instructing them to be ready to endure. Gently and by degrees, he excites and urges the disciples on toward greater responsiveness. Jesus is never in a rush. Even when it's stormy, he's not in a rush. But his delay is not because of his personality. His delay is not because he's spiteful. His delay is not because he's distracted. His delay is because he's a teacher and he can't help himself from being a teacher. He's going to teach us in his absence, but he's going to teach us in his delay. And the delay will mature us. The delay will train us. He will use all things for our good, including our fears. Including our fears. And our fears train us to be more responsive, Chrysostom says. (laughs) 
I never saw this until this past week, but we know famously Jesus, uh, Peter, excuse me, uh, says, Lord, if that's you, command me to come out of the boat and I'll come. And he comes out of the boat and, you know, he sinks down and Jesus picks, picks him up out of the water. He saves him. And you notice the storm doesn't stop until they get back to the boat, the two of them. That is, if Jesus is making a point, here's the point. We know he can walk on water, but he doesn't stop the storm. He's willing to walk on stormy water, not a a swimming pool water. And when he saves Peter out of the stormy water, the whole walk back to the boat is in a storm. Many times we'll ask God to help us, ask God to save us, and we think that because the storm hasn't stopped that he hasn't rescued us. The storm is still raging. He's just bringing Peter back to the boat. The fact is, each one of us in this room, if you're in a personal storm or if one is coming your way, here's what we must take from this this morning, and that is we need Jesus more than we need the storm to cease. We need him in our sinking because in our sinking, Jesus is teaching. I was talking with Dr. Green about this text this week and he sent me something that he had worked on and J.H. King, who's somebody I've never heard of, but he's a Pentecostal uh, theologian and writer from a long time ago, which is 100 years for Pentecostals. Um, It's just a joke. I am one. Um, This is amazing, though. This really is amazing. He said, our experience of God must be crucified. Our experience of God must be crucified. Because we will find the ecstasies of joy, the peace of heaven so sweet that we begin to feel that the experience is essential to our living faithfully. In other words, if we're going to be faithful, it's because the storm has ceased and the waters are glassy. He goes on to say, we shall come to the point where God will lead us away from these ecstasies. Most churches aren't hearing this this morning, that God's plan is to lead you away from your ecstasies. Why? Look at this. And as a result, we shall sink deeper into him. (sighs) Church fathers, when they talk about this text, of course, the sea is like the world. The sea is like the world. It is filled with upheaval. It is filled with danger. It is filled with uncertainty. And they even likened this, and I wish I could remember the person who said it, they likened the fish of the sea to humanity. But in this specific sense, they said the fish of the sea are like men devouring one another. And I think this is something like what we're seeing in our headlines the last 48 hours. We're seeing humanity's fallen, almost animal instinct for self-preservation at the expense of another When we look into the face of another person, and rather than seeing the image of God, we see a threat to our well-being, we are surely in the grips of evil. And I find it interesting 
that this tumultuous sea oftentimes is glassy on the surface and it's raging underneath. There's a riptide in American culture that no amount of success, no amount of financial advance can eliminate this current that will pull us down in ways that are destructive and ultimately kill us, as we saw, unfortunately, yesterday. Christ have mercy. We must take heart this morning because even though there's a storm, And even though there is much work to do, can I say this on my second Sunday with a little bit of boldness? I don't think it's necessarily helpful on a Sunday like this to have an extended sermon on race relations in America if we don't talk about it the other 51 Sundays of the year. It becomes, I feel, it can become a little bit trite and a little bit obligatory. Something needs to be said. Not everything can be said. And certainly when you speak to issues like this, you will say things incorrectly. But that doesn't mean you say nothing. I think the reality is The picture of Jesus walking on the sea gives me hope because I'm reminded of the text in which the Apostle Paul says that all things are under his feet. We worship, we follow the Prince of Peace. He doesn't cease to be that when we see the tumult on our screens and on our phones. But we walk with him ourselves being picked up out of this mess by his grace. No better, in no way superior, just grateful. Just grateful that we walk with the one who walks on water. Can we bow our heads this morning? I think it would be appropriate rather than for me to say anything else or even for me to pray publicly if we could just spend a couple of moments praying like David prayed. Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way inside my heart. I don't trust myself to search myself. I invite God to search me. My own biases and my own Inclinations towards self-defense will not help me this morning. Lord, may we open our hearts to you. Come and search us, we ask.